Chapter Three of Rebel Spurs by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Only a well-armed and convoyed set of wagons, with a highly experienced and competent master, could dare travel the Apache-infested trail these days. The first of the freighters, pulled by a sixteen-mule team, fairly burst into the plaza, outriders fanning about it. One of the mounted men was dressed in fringed buckskin, his shoulder-length hair and bushy black beard, the badge of a frontier already passing swiftly into history. He rode a big black mule and carried a long-barreled rifle, not in the saddle boot, but resting across the horn, as if even here in Tabaca there might be reason for instant action. The mule trotted on to the middle of the plaza. Then the weapon pointed skyward as its owner fired into the air, voicing a whoop as wild as a rebel yell from the throat of a charging Texas trooper. He was answered by cries and shouts from the gathering crowd as five more wagons, each with a trailer hooked to its main bulk, pulled in around the edge of the open area until the center of the town was full and the din of brain mules was deafening. Drew retreated to the roofed entrance of the four jacks. The extra step of height there enabled him to get a good look at two more horsemen pushing past the end wagon. Both wore the dress of Mexican gentlemen, their short jackets glistening with silver braid and embroidery. Their bridles, horse gear, and saddles were rich in scrolls and decorations of the same metal. Navajo blankets lay under the saddles, and serapes were folded over the shoulder of one rider, tied behind the cantle of the other. They pulled up before the cantina, and one man took the reins of both mounts. If the rider's clothing and horse furnishings were colorful, the horses themselves were equally striking. One was a chestnut, a warm, well-groomed red, but the other, Drew stared. In all his years about the stables and breeding farms of Kentucky, and throughout his travel since, he had never seen a horse like this. Its coat was pure gold, a perfect match to one of the eagles in his money belt. But the silky locks of mane and tail were night black. Its breeding was plainly Arab, and it walked with a delicate pride, as gracefully as a man might foot a dance measure. Drew had a difficult time breaking his gaze from the horse to the man dismounting. The ranchero was tall, perhaps an inch or so taller than Drew, and his body had the leanness of the men who worked the range country, possessing, too, a lithe youthfulness of carriage. Until one looked directly into the sun-browned face, he could pass as a man still in his late twenties. But he was older, perhaps a decade older than that, Drew thought. Two high and prominent cheekbones with slight hollows below them and a mouth tight-set, made more of strength of will and discipline of feeling than conventional good looks. Yet his face was not easily forgotten, once seen. Black hair was pepper-salted for a finger-wide space above his ears, which were fronted by long sideburns, and black brows were straight above dark eyes. In spite of his below-the-border dress and his coloring, he was unmistakably Anglo, just as the man looping both horses' reins to the rack 
was Mexican. So you're still wearing your hair in good order. No trouble this trip? Topham had come to the door of the cantina, his hand outstretched. Welcome back, Hunt. Pa, the Mexican spat. Where is there one Indio who is able to face Don Cazar on his own ground? The folly of that they learned long ago. Don Cazar smiled. The mask of aloofness was wiped away, as if he were ten years younger and twenty years less responsible than he had been only seconds earlier. And if they did not beware our rifles, Bartolomo here would talk them to death. Is that not so, amigo? His speech was oddly formal, as if he were using a language other than his own. But there was a warmth to the tone which matched the sudden and surprising smile. Topham's arm went about the shoulders under the black and silver jacket, drawing Don Cazar into the light music and excitement of the cantina. While Drew watched, the stouter back of Bartolomo cut off his first good look at his father. So that was Don Cazar, Hunt Rennie. Drew did not know what he had expected of their first meeting. Now he could not understand why he felt so chilled and lost. He had planned it this way, no demands, no claims, on a stranger. Freedom to make decisions about when or how he would see his father. That was the only path he could take. But now he turned slowly away from that open door, the light, the laughter, and singing, and walked back toward the stable, loneliness cutting into him. Tubacca had slumbered apathetically before. Now the town was wide awake. In a couple of days, the wagon train would head on north to Tucson. But now the activity in the plaza was a mixture of market day and fiesta. Small traders from Sonora took advantage of the protection afforded by Don Cazar's outriders and had trailed along with their own products, now being spread out and hawked. Parrots shrieked from homemade cages. Brightly woven fabrics were draped to catch the eye. As he wandered about viewing cactus syrup sweet, brown panocha candy, fruit, dried meat, blankets, saddles, Drew was again aware of the almost strident color of this country. He fingered appreciatively a horn goblet carved with intricate figures of gods his Anglo eyes did not recognize. The hum of voices, the bray of mules, the baaing and gnawing of sheep and goats kept up a roar to equal surf on a sea coast. Afternoon was fast fading into evening, but Tabaka, aroused from the post-noon siesta, was in tumult. A fighting cock, tethered to a cartwheel, stretched its neck to the utmost in attempt to peck at Drew's spurs. He laughed, attracted, wrenched out of his own private world. The smell of spicy food, of fruit, of animals and people, the clamor, the sights. Drew rounded one end of a wagon and stepped abruptly into yet another world and time. All the stories which had been dinned warningly into his ears since he had left the Mississippi, now brought his hand to one of the colts at his belt. Most of the half-dozen men, squatting on their heels, about a fire, were three-quarters bare, showing dusty brown bodies. Two had dirty calico shirts, loose above hide breech clouts. Dark brown eyes, as unreadable as Johnny Shannon's, 
surveyed Drew, but none of the Indians moved or spoke. Common sense took over, and Drew's hand dropped from the gun, but hostiles would not be camping peacefully here in the heart of town. He could not be facing the wild Apaches or Navajos. But these were the first Indians he had seen this close since he had ridden out of Texas. Something bugging you, boy? Drew's war-trained muscles took over. He was in a half-crouch, the colt flipped over and out, pointing into the shadows where the newcomer emerged. Then the Kentuckian flushed and slammed his weapon back into the holster. This was the buckskin man who had whooped the train into town that morning. Might quick to show your iron, ain't you? There was a chill in the question, and Drew saw that the long rifle was still held at alert by its owner. Cat footin' up on a man ought to make you expect something of a reception, Drew countered. Yep, guess some men has sure got him a belly full of lead doing that. To Drew's surprise, the other was now grinning. You hunting someone? No, just looking around. Drew longed to ask some things himself, but hesitated. Frontier etiquette was different from Kentucky custom. It was safer to be quiet when not sure. Well, there's plenty to see tonight, right enough. Me, I'm Crow Fenner. I ride scout for the train. And these here, they're Rennie's Pimas. One of them is running the trail this trip. So these were the famous Pima Scouts. No wonder they took their ease in the Tabaca Plaza. Every man, woman, and child in those adobe buildings had reason to be thankful for their skill and cunning. The web of protection Rini's Pima Scouts had woven in this river valley. I'm Kirby, Drew Kirby. He hastened to match one introduction with another. This is my first time in the valley. From the east, huh? Texas. Texas? Something in a way Fenner repeated that made it sound not like a confirmation but a question. Or was Drew overly suspicious? After all, as Callie had agreed last night, the late Republic of Texas was a very large strip of country, housing a multitude of native sons, from the planting families of the Brazos to the ranchers and crude cabins of the Rosado. There were Texans and Texans, differing greatly in speech, manners, and background. And one did not ask intimate questions of a man riding west of the Pecos. Too often he might have come hunting a district where there was longer distance between sheriffs. What a man volunteered about his past was accepted as the truth. Rode a far piece, then, Fenner commented. Me, I've been trailing round this here country since the moon was two-bit size.' 